Section 13 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 13, by the Reverend M. Lindsay. The common man, of course, could not be expected to understand or care for such high matters. But pagan philosophy had never thought much of the common man, which was its weakness, and he had always the gods nearest him to worship in that instinctive way which was alone possible for an intelligence such as his. Yet Julian, with more sympathetic feeling for his needs than most pagan thinkers, made provision that even he should be taught the underlying unity and Catholicity of his ancestral faith. Just as in Christianity Jesus was the revealer of the Father, and men were taught to see the one supreme God in the Son incarnate, the Mediator, so Julian called on all men to see in the great orb of day the visible manifestation of the supreme principle, the first cause, who has begotten him and placed him in the heavens, the medium through which he dispenses his benefits throughout the universe of men and things. Even Christians, Julian thinks, might come to see this if their minds were not so darkened. They believe in Jesus, whom neither they nor their fathers have ever seen, but they do not believe that the god Helios is the true revealer of God. Helios, whom the whole human race from the beginning of time has seen and has honoured as their munificent and potent benefactor. Helios, the living, animated, beneficent image of the Supreme Father, who is exalted above all the powers of reason. Man has body as well as soul. He has senses as he has capacities for intellectual thinking. Therefore he needs visible gods to represent the gods invisible, whom the supreme principle has sent forth from himself, and who suit the religious needs not merely of the different nations and tribes of mankind, but also of the various divisions of men, such as shopkeepers, tax-gatherers, dancers, etc. These thousands of deities are all in their places representatives of the one supreme principle who has sent them forth and on whom they depend. The sun among the stars is an emblem of this divine unity in diversity. Having thus demonstrated, as he believed, by exhortations and treatises, the unity which underlay the surface diversity of polytheism, Julian gave full scope to his desire to honour every manifestation of the one supreme principle, and to make use of every means whereby man could both show his reverence for, and seek communion with, the divine. His first care was to make it clear to all that the worship of the old gods was to be the privileged cult. Bishops were banished from the antechambers and audience halls of the palace, and in their stead came pagan priests and neoplatonic philosophers chief among them being Maximus, the medium. The emperor was unwearied in issuing decrees that all the ancient temples were to be thrown open, and that the ceremonies of all the ancient cults were to be duly performed. It might be said that he converted his palace into a temple, so determined was he that every heathen festival should be observed, and every detail of appropriate rite and sacrifice duly attended to, and it was said that his knowledge of the various rituals surpassed that of the priests themselves. 
His devotion to the whole sacrificial system of paganism has been recorded both by enemies and friends. We are told of one solemn sacrifice at which the victims included 100 bulls, rams, sheep and goats, as well as innumerable white birds from land and sea. He issued minute directions about the number of the sacrifices which were to be offered by day and by night in the reopened temples. He wished that all the old gods should be invoked, Saturn, Jupiter, Apollo, Mars, Pluto, Bacchus, Silenus, Esculapius, Castor and Pollux, Rhea, Juno, Minerva, Latona, Venus, Hecate, the Muses, etc., etc. But personally, like the pagans of the age he lived in, he was more devoted to the deities of Oriental origin, to the Attis cult, to Mithras, and most of all to Isis and Serapis. Dionysos, whose cult had many of the Oriental characteristics, seems to have been his most favoured among the gods of Greece. The office of Pontifex Maximus was an imperial prerogative and the one most prized by Julian. He was unwearied in the performance of all the duties it required, and he used it in his attempt to create that Catholic pagan state church. The very conception is decisive proof that Julian aimed not at the revival, but at a thorough reconstruction of paganism. He had the thought of a great independent spiritual community wide as the empire. A community so holy and separated that men and women who abandoned Christianity could only be admitted into it after the performance of prescribed purifying rites. This community was to be ruled over by a priesthood set apart for the service and forming a graded hierarchy. At the head of all was the Pontifex Maximus, next came pagan metropolitans or the high priests of provinces. Under them were high priests who had rule over the temples and priests within the districts assigned to them. It is improbable that Julian had completed the hierarchical organization of the empire before his death, but large parts of the east had been put in order. We have some briefs which he, a supreme pontiff, sent down to his metropolitans, in which he regulated many things from the dress and morals of the clergy to the training of temple choirs. So minute was the interference of the pontifex maximus. Now it is possible that one form of paganism, the imperial cult, had been strictly organized in the west, and its provincial priests may have had some jurisdiction over the ministers of other cults. Maximin Daza had attempted to do something similar in the East, but the attempt to gather every cult of polytheism into one organized communion was not merely new, it was a startling novelty. Julian's conception of a pagan priesthood entirely devoted to the service of religion was certainly not Hellenist, nor was it Roman, it was Oriental. The cults of Egypt, of Syria, and of Asia had separated priesthoods. It was a new thing to be introduced into a universal state church whose religion called itself Hellenism. Julian thought a great deal about this priesthood of his and recognized its supreme importance for the reformation he dreamt of making. As the priest from the office he fills ought to be an example to all men who should be selected with care, if possible a man of good family, neither very rich nor very poor, but the indispensable qualifications are that he loves God and his neighbor. Love to God may be tested by observing whether the members of his family attend the temple services with regularity. Julian was very indignant when he discovered that the wives and daughters of some pagan priests were actually Christians, and love to one's neighbor by charity to the poor. Julian further insisted that the priest must be careful about what he reads. 
He is to shun all lascivious writings, such as the old comedies or the contemporary erotic novels. He is to be equally circumspect in his conduct. He must not go to the theatre, nor to spectacles, and is not to frequent wine shops. He is not to consort with actors, nor to admit them to his house. He is even recommended not to accept too many invitations to dinner. On the other hand, he is to see that he is master within his temple. He is to wear within it gorgeous vestments in honour of the gods whom he serves, but outside the sanctuary, when he mingles with men, he is to wear the ordinary dress. He is not to permit even the commander of the forces or the governor of the province to enter the temple with ostentation. He is to know the service thoroughly and to be able to repeat all the divine hymns. Occasionally he is to deliver addresses on philosophical subjects for the instruction of the multitude. Julian also desired that the priests should organize schemes of charitable relief, more especially for the poor who attend the temple services. He thought that some such widely organized scheme might help to counteract the popularity of the Galileans. He seems also to have contemplated the institution of religious communities of men and women vowed to a life of chastity and meditation, another proof that his so-called Hellenism was based much more on Oriental religions than on those of Greece. The emperor, in all this legislation or advice, was at pains to declare that he was acting not as emperor, but as Pontifex Maximus of the religion of my country. One feature of Julian's attempt to make the worship of the gods the universal and privileged religion of the empire is too characteristic of the age to be entirely passed over. In the opening pages of this chapter, in which the living paganism of the 3rd and 4th centuries is briefly described, it is shown that the old official worships of Greece and Rome lingered as mere simulacra, and that the real religious life of the times was fed by oriental faiths, which had introduced such thoughts as redemption, salvation, purification, the way of return, etc. It is not too much to say that whatever of the old pagan piety remained in the middle of the 4th century had attached itself to the worship of the mysteries, and that pious men, if educated, looked on the different initiations and rites of purification taught in the various cults to be ways of attaining the same redemption or finding the same way of return. Julian belonged to his age. He was a pure-hearted and deeply pious man. His piety was in a real sense heart-religion, and like that of his contemporaries, clothed itself in the cult of the mysteries. While his nervous, sensitive character inclined him personally to the theurgic or magical side of the cult, and especially to what reproduced the old Dionysiac ecstasy. Hence the dominating thought in Julian's mind was to reform the whole public worship of paganism by impregnating it with the real piety and heart religion of the mysteries cult. The one thing really reactionary in the movement he contemplated was the return to the worship of the old official deities, but he had proposed to attempt this in a way which can only be called revolutionary. He endeavoured to put life into the old rituals by bringing to their aid and quickening them with that sincere fervour which the mysteries cult demanded from its votaries. This is what makes Julian such an interesting figure in the history of paganism, while it in part accounts for his complete failure to do what he attempted. He tried to unite two things which had utterly separate roots, whose ideals were different, and which could not easily blend. For the religion of the mysteries was essentially a private cult, into which men and women were received, one by one, by rites of initiation which each had to pass through personally, and when admitted, they became members of coteries, large or small, 
of like-minded persons. They had entered because their souls had craved something which they believed the initiations and purifications would give. It was a common saying among them that as sickness of the body needed medicine, so the sickness of the soul acquired those rites to which they submitted. What had this to do with the courteous recognition due to bright celestial beings, which was the central thought of the official religion of Greece, or the punctilious performance of ceremonies which was believed to propitiate the sterner deities of Rome? Mysteries and participation in their rites may exist along with a belief in the necessity and religious value of the public services of a state religion, but whenever the latter can only be justified even by its own votaries on the ground of traditional and patriotic propriety, mystery worship may take its place, but can never quicken it. When the whole piety of paganism disappeared in the mysteries cult, it estranged itself from the national and official religion, and the mysteries could never be used to recall the gods of Olympus, for whose banishment they had been largely responsible. No edicts of an emperor could change the bright deities of Olympus into saviours, or transform their careless votaries into men who felt in their hearts the need of redemption and a way of return. Yet that was what Julian had to do when he proposed to impregnate the old official worship with the fervour of the mysteries cult. It was equally in vain to think that the mysteries cult, which owed its power to its spontaneity, to its independence, to its individuality, could be drilled and organised into the national religion of a great empire. It was a true instinct that led Julian to see that the real and living pagan piety of his generation had taken refuge within the circles of the mysteries, and that the hope of paganism lay in the spread of the fervour which kindled their votaries. His mistake lay in thinking that it could be used to re-quicken the official worship. It would have been better for his designs had he acted as did Vettius Agorius Pretextatus, the model of genuine pagan piety in the Roman senatorial circle, princeps religiosorum, Macrobius calls him. Pretextatus contented himself with a dignified and cool recognition of the official deities of Rome, but sought outlet for his piety elsewhere, in initiations at Eleusis and other places, and in the purifying rite of the Taurobolium. The sentimental side of Julian's nature led him astray. He could not forget his early studies in Homer and Hesiod. He quotes Homer as frequently and as fervently as a contemporary Christian does the Holy Scriptures, and he had to introduce the gods of Olympus somewhere. He tried to unite the passionate Oriental worships with the dignified Greek and the grey Roman ceremonies where personal faith was superfluous. The elements were too incongruous. In spite of all the signs of a reaction against Christianity, Julian failed, and for himself the tragedy of his failure lay in the apathy of his co-religionists. In spite of his elaborate treaties against Christianity and his other writings, notwithstanding his public orations and his private persuasions, Julian did not succeed in making many converts. We hear of no Christians of Mark who embraced Hellenism, save the rhetorician Hisibolius and Pegasius, a bishop with a questionable past. The emperor boasted that his Hellenism made some progress in the army, but at his death the legions selected a Christian successor. It is almost pathetic to read Julian's accounts of his continual disappointments. He could not find in all Cappadocia a single man who was a true Hellenist. They did not care to offer sacrifice, and those who did so did not know how. In Galatia, at Pacinus, where stood a famous temple erected to the Great Mother, he had to bribe and threaten the inhabitants to do honour to the goddess. 
at the barrier he harangued the municipal council on the duty of worshipping the gods they all warmly praised my discourse he says somewhat sadly but none were convinced by it save the few who were convinced before hearing so it was wherever he went even pagan admirers like ammianus marcellinus were rather bored with the emperor's hellenism and thought the whole thing a devout imagination not worth the trouble he wasted on it the senatorial circle at rome had no sympathy with julian's hellenic revival no one showed any enthusiasm but the narrow circle of neoplatonist sophists and they had no influence with the people yet julian's attempt to stay the progress of christianity and to drive back the tide which was submerging the empire was with all its practical faults by far the ablest yet conceived it provided a substitute and presented an alternative the substitute was pretentious and artificial but it was probably the best that the times could furnish hellenism julian called it but where in that golden past of hellas into which the imperial dream appeared could be found a puritan strictness of conduct a prolonged and sustained religious fervour and a religion independent of the state the three strongest parts of his scheme had no connection with hellenism religions may be used but cannot be created by statesmen unless they happen to have the prophetic fire and inspiration and julian was no prophet he may be credited with seizing and combining in one whole the strongest anti-christian forces of his generation the passion of oriental religion the patriotic desire to retain the old religion under which greece and rome had grown great the glory of the ancient literature the superstition which clung to magic and divinations and the philosophy which if it lacked independence of thought at least represented that eclecticism which was the intellectual atmosphere which all men then breathed he brought them together to build an edifice which was to be the temple of his empire but though the builder had many of the qualities which go to make a religious reformer pure in heart and life full of sincere piety manly and with a strong sense of duty the edifice he reared was quite artificial lacked the living principle of growth and could not last athanasius gave its history in four words when he said it will soon pass the world had outgrown paganism whatever faults the christianity of the time exhibited whatever ills had come to it from imperial patronage in conformity with the world it still retained within it the original simplicity and profundity of its message nothing in its environment could take that from it it proclaimed a living god who had made man and all things and for whom man was made that god had manifested himself in jesus christ and the centre of the manifestation was the passion of our lord the cross whatever special meanings attach themselves to the intellectual apprehension of this manifestation it contains two plain thoughts which can be grasped as easily by the simplest as by the most cultured intelligence and was therefore universal as no previous religion had ever been it gave a new revelation of god a personal deity whose chiefest manifestation was a sympathy with all who were beneath him and a yearning to deliver them at all costs to himself it gave at the same time a new revelation of man made in the image of god and therefore capable of a far-off imitation his life no longer ruled by the precepts of a calculating utilitarianism nor curbed by a statutory morality freed from the chains of all taboos and rituals inspired by the one principle thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself and this thought made vivid by the vision of a pure active divine life which spent itself in the service of mankind some of the oriental religions notably those of mithras and isis were groping after this idea of brother man 
The imperial world was in a vague way advancing towards it, but the cross of Christ showed its highest and clearest manifestation. Therefore Christianity, teaching that every follower of Christ, in so far as he was really a disciple, should imitate the Master, could set the stamp of the cross on every portion of human life and on every social institution. It was the religion of the cross, the religion whose watchword was brother man. It was therefore universal, and to it the future belonged. If such things can be dated, the death of Julian marks the triumph of Christianity in the Roman world, Eastern and Western. The exclamation, Galilean thou hast conquered, is a fable which clothes the fact. Yet it would be a grave mistake to say that paganism disappeared suddenly, either from the East or from the West. In the East it never recovered its position as a state religion, but it existed as a private cult practiced by no inconsiderable proportion of the people. It did not offer the strenuous resistance to imperial anti-pagan legislation which was to be seen in the West. The number of Christians had always been much larger, and it is more than probable that many of the laws against pagans were supported by public opinion. Julian's immediate successors practiced a policy of toleration for all religions and contented themselves with professing and favoring Christianity. It was the religion of the imperial household and of the great majority of the population, nothing more. Pagans lived on free to worship what divinities they pleased. Even when Valens and emperors who came after him renewed and enforced laws against pagan worship, no traces are to be found of anything like a general persecution. Accusations were listened to and procedure taken against numbers of wealthy persons in the hope of filling the imperial treasury, but the mass of the people remained untouched. Whole districts, which were notoriously poor, were exempted from the operation of the laws. During the reign of Valens, a large number of temples fell into ruins, but probably it was not the operation of the law which caused their destruction. The more celebrated temples were often in possession of large yearly revenues derived from lands and other endowments, and in charge of the hereditary priesthood who presided over the worship. As paganism decayed, these priesthoods frequently secularized the revenues, took possession of them, and were content to see the edifices fall into ruin. Still, paganism remained rooted in many of the old noble families of the East, and in such aristocratic households the place of private chaplain was filled by a neoplatonic philosopher. As many of the members of this nobility were called to occupy high places in the civil administration of the empire, they were able to protect their co-religionists, and took care to see that the anti-pagan laws were not enforced within their jurisdictions. Optatus, prefect of Constantinople in 404, was a pagan. In AD 467, Isocasios, the quaestor of Antioch, was accused of paganism. Phocas took poison to prevent himself being obliged to embrace Christianity as late as the time of Justinian. Many of the more famous literary men, Eunapius, Zosimus, perhaps Procopius, were strongly anti-Christian. Pampripius, a Neoplatonist famed for his power of divination, an avowed pagan, drew a salary from the public revenues, and along with distinguished generals like Marsus and Leontius, aided Illus in his revolt against the Emperor Zeno in 484. But by the end, and indeed throughout the whole of the 5th century, thoughtful paganism had become a sort of quietism, and exercised no influence on the public life of the population. When Theodosius the Great succeeded in uniting the Orthodox Church with the imperial administration, when the great bishops were placed in possession of powers almost equal to those of the governors of provinces, 
the church became the guardian of the rights of the people and the interpreter of its wishes. The church, in that age of bureaucracy, had a popular constitution. Its clergy came from the people, the services were in the language of the district, its bishops were the natural and sympathetic leaders of the people, and the whole population gradually became included within the Christian church. Athens and Achaia long remained the last stronghold of paganism in the east. The Eleusinian and other mysteries, the great heathen festivals celebrated in Athens and in other cities of Hellas, attracted crowds of strangers from all parts of the empire. Religious beliefs, patriotic associations, thoughts of material prosperity combined to make the people of the towns and districts resolute to maintain and defend them. So strong were the popular feelings that it would have led to riots, probably to attempted insurrection, to enforce the imperial legislation against temples, sacrifices, and the celebration of pagan ceremonies by night. The emperors found it necessary either to exempt Hellas from the operation of these laws altogether, or to suffer their non-enforcement. The Eleusinian mysteries continued until the famous temple was destroyed by the Goths under Alaric. The Olympic Games were celebrated until the reign of Theodosius I, 394. The great and venerated statue of Minerva remained to protect the city of Athens until about 480. The great temple of Olympia remained open until its destruction, whether by the Goths or by command of Theodosius II, is unknown. In the 4th and 5th centuries, Athens remained the most distinguished intellectual centre of the time. The teachers in its schools, for the most part Leoplatonists, who resolutely refused to accept Christianity, maintained the old pagan traditions. Their influence was recognised and feared. Theodosius II forbade private teachers to give public lectures under pain of banishment. Justinian, determined to crush the last remains of paganism, confiscated the funds which furnished the salaries of the professors, seized on the endowments of the Academy of Plato, and closed the schools. The persecuted philosophers fled to Persia to avoid imprisonment or death, and remained there until King Khosrow obtained from the emperor a promise that they would be unmolested if they returned to their homes. In the West, paganism showed itself much stronger. It displayed its greatest tenacity in Rome itself, and there were many reasons why it should do so. The old paganism had been closely connected with the state, and when it ceased to be the privileged religion, it had no common centre around which to rally. In Rome it was otherwise. Its stronghold was the Senate, and all the elements of opposition to Christianity could group themselves around that venerable assembly. The Senate had lost its powers, but its prestige remained, and the emperors were chary of attacking its dignity. It represented the ancient grandeur of Rome, and was the heir and defender of old Roman traditions. The city was full of monuments of Rome's past greatness. They were, for the most part, temples built to commemorate signal victories, and were visible signs of the old religion under which Rome had grown to greatness. The Senate took pride in preserving these witnesses of the past splendours of the imperial city, and in seeing that the old ceremonial rites were duly performed in spite of anti-pagan legislation. During the second half of the fourth century and into the fifth, the pagan senators of Rome flaunted their religion in the face of the world. They were at pains to record on their family tombstones and other private monuments that they had been hierophants of Hecate, had been initiated at Eleusis, had been priests of Hercules, Attis, Isis or Mithras. In spite of the edicts and efforts of the sons of Constantine and of successors of Julian, paganism was the state religion of Rome down to 383. Worship was performed according to the old rites. 
the days consecrated to the old gods and others added in honour of the newer oriental deities were the roman holidays every year on twenty seventh january the prefectus urbi went down to ostia and presided over game in honour of castor and pollux all these costly ceremonies sacrifices and shows were provided for out of the imperial treasury they were part of the state religion and the senate were determined they should be so regarded the emperor might be a christian but he was nevertheless pontifex maximus the official head of the old pagan religion and they believed themselves justified in performing its rites in his name the emperor gratian delivered the first effectual blow against this state of matters he refused to assume the office of pontifex maximus probably in three hundred and seventy five in three hundred and eighty two he ordered that the great pagan ceremonies and sacrifices should no longer be defrayed out of the imperial treasury and saw that he was obeyed he took from the ancient priesthoods of rome the emoluments and immunities which they had enjoyed for centuries he removed from the senate house the statue of victory and its altar on which incense had been duly burnt since the days of octavius the last great battle for the official recognition of paganism raged over these decrees it lasted about ten years Symmachus and Ambrose, both representatives of old Roman patrician families, were the leaders on the pagan and on the Christian side. The pagan party in the Senate fought every inch of ground against the advancing tide of Christianity. Its leading members enrolled themselves in the ancient priesthoods and assumed the dignities of the Sacra Peregrina. They provided for the sacrifices and other sacred rites at their own expense. They spent their means in restoring ancient temples and in building new ones. They had high hopes of a pagan reaction under Maximus, who had defeated and slain Gratian. Under the short-lived Emperor Eugenius, who promised on his leaving Milan to meet Theodosius in battle, that on his return he would stable his horses in Christian basilicas. The victory of Theodosius, 394, on the Frigidus ended these hopes. They revived again for the last time, when Alaric made Attalus a rival emperor to Honorius, and when that ruler gathered round him counsellors who were for the most part pagans professed or secret but paganism was not destined to obtain even a temporary victory perhaps as augustine said it only desired to die honourably its political defeats did not quench the zeal of its lessening number of votaries they engaged in polemical contests with their opponents they wrote books to prove that the invasions of the barbarians and the weakness of the empire were punishments sent by the gods for the abandonment of the ancient religion, and called forth such replies as the Historia Adversos Paganos of Paulus Orosius and the De Civitate Dei of St. Augustine. The tenacity of paganism in the West was not confined to Rome. The poems of Rutilius, the homilies of Maximus of Turin and of Martin of Bracara, the epistles of St. Augustine, the history of Gregory of Tours, and the series of facts collected in the Anecdota of Caspari all show that paganism lingered long in Italy, Gaul, Spain, and North Africa, and that neither the persuasions of Christian preachers nor the penalties threatened by the state were able to uproot it altogether. The records of district ecclesiastical councils tell the same tale. Literature may almost be called the last stronghold of paganism for the cultivated classes all over the empire. It is hard for us to sympathize with the feelings of Christians in the fifth century for whom cultivated paganism was a living reality possessed of seductive power, who could not separate classical literature from the religious atmosphere in which it had been produced, and who regarded the masterpieces of the Augustan age as beautiful horrors from which they might hardly escape. Jerome had fears for his soul's salvation 
because he could not conquer his admiration for Cicero's Latin prose, and Augustine shrank within himself when he thought on his love for the poems of Virgil. Had not his classical tastes driven him in youth from the uncouth latinity of the copies of the Holy Scriptures when he tried to read them? Christianity had mastered their heart, mind, and conscience, but it could not stifle fond recollection nor tame the imagination. In some respects, paganism ruled over literature. The poet Claudian, whether he was heathen or Christian, lived and moved and had his being in the world of pagan thought. Sidonius Apollinaris could not string verses without endless mythological allusions. Brutilius, a hater of Christians and of their religion, adored with heart and soul the Dea Roma, Urbs Etana. Perhaps the dread of the power which seemed to lurk in literature was heightened by the courteous and kindly intercourse of Christians with pagans during the years of the last struggle. The church owed much to the schools and was almost afraid of the debt. Basil and Gregory had been fellow students with Julian at Athens. Chrysostom had been a pupil of Labanius and acknowledged how much he owed to the great anti-Christian leader. Synesius had sat in the classroom of Hypatia at Alexandria and never forgot some of the lessons he had learned there. And paganism never showed itself to greater advantage than during its last year's heroic but unavailing struggle. Its leaders, whether in the schools of Athens or among the senatorial party at Rome, were for the most part men of pure lives with a high moral standard of conduct, men who commanded esteem and respect. Immorality abounded, but the pagan standard had become much higher. Christians and heathen were full of mutual esteem for each other. The letters exchanged between Symmachus and Ambrose revealed the intimacy in which the nobler pagans and earnest-minded Christians lived. Even the caustic Jerome seems to have had a lurking but sincere affection for some of the leaders of the pagan senatorial party. It is curious, too, to find that many of those stalwart supporters of the old religion of Rome were married to Christian wives, and that their daughters were brought up as Christians, while the sons followed the father's faith. Jerome has drawn no more charming picture than that of the old heathen pontiff Albinus, the leader of the anti-Christian party in Rome, sitting in his study with his small granddaughter on his knees, listening to the child while she repeated to him a Christian hymn she had just been taught by her mother. Theodosius II, most theological of emperors, married the daughter of a pagan who had taught philosophy in the schools of Athens. Yet however near pagans and Christians might approach each other in life and standard of conduct, a great gulf separated them. In the grey twilight of that fifth century, when men whose sight seemed furthest looked forward to the coming of a night of chaos, the Christian whisper of consolation was better than the pagan thought of destiny. The difference went further than ideals. If it be strange to find practical statesmen like Ambrose and Augustine able to see that the pressing need of the times was upright citizenship, defending that ascetic life which threw aside all civic duties and responsibilities, surely it is stranger still to find those pure-minded, noble pagans, forced by religious partisanship, to be the zealous defenders of the bloody gladiatorial spectacles and the untiring opponents of all attempts to better the unhappy lot of actors and actresses condemned to lifelong slavery in a calling which then could not fail to be disgraceful. If the dying world was to be requickened, it was not paganism that could bring salvation. So it slowly, almost unconsciously, passed away before the advancing tide of Christianity. Means were found of reconciling many festivals to which the populace was devoted, both in town and in country, with the prevailing Christian sentiment. It was evil to fate Bacchus or Ceres, 
but there could be no harm in rejoicing publicly over the vintage and the harvest. The Lupercalia themselves were changed into a Christian festival by Pope Galatius. Many a tutelary deity became a patron saint. The people retained their rustic processions, their feasts and their earthly delights. The temples were left standing. There became public halls where the citizens could meet, or exchanges where the merchants could congregate, while the statues of the gods looked down from their niches undisturbed and unheeded. So when the Teutonic invasion seemed to overwhelm utterly the ancient civilization, the church with its compact organization was strong enough to sustain itself amid the wreck of all things, and was able to teach the barbarian conquerors to assimilate much of the culture, many of the laws and institutions of the conquered, and in the end to rear a new and holy Roman Empire on the ruins of the old. End of section 13